The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning again. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It is our joy and our pleasure that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Um, it's been a busy week for us. We have uh, the, the staff, well, Joel, our, our worship leader, he um, Julian, his wife had a baby uh, last, I think it was on Sunday. I can't remember now, but it's been, it's all a blur. Uh, last Sunday, so they're enjoying their baby at home. Uh, Trent, who led us in worship this morning, he's our worship leader for our Moline uh, congregation that's, that we're planting over there. Uh, then the staff went to uh, an Acts 29 retreat in Lansing, Michigan. Uh, it's a re- it was a regional gathering for us, learning together, growing together trying to figure out how to plant more churches specifically in uh, the Midwest area, in the Midwest region. And so that was a good time, a little, little exhausting for us, but we got back uh, late uh, Friday night on that. Then last night, uh, we had an, uh, an awesome kind of fundraiser and celebration for Nick and Danielle Bergthold, who are trying to adopt a child. And we had a trivia night that their missional community put on, and a couple hundred people showed up to that. And that was great. I was just looking across everybody and wondering, okay, I wonder how many people actually consider this church. How many are just not going to come tomorrow because they're like, the pastor was there. They said a prayer. There was wine. You know, let's call it good. But I'm thankful some of you guys showed up today. And uh, it was a great, I don't know how much we raised last night, but it was a great, it was a great event. And I know it was a huge blessing to them. Um, and so today we're in our text. We're finishing up this uh, chapter 12. Like I said, it's been a busy week. Tonight we've got the thing going on over at the, the vision night. And so I, I just would, I need prayer. I need prayer. Uh, I'm not satisfied with what I'm about to preach this morning. So hopefully the spirit will help me out while I'm preaching it. And uh, we're, if not, well, I'll be back next week. Hopefully it'll be better. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for how active you are at our church, that we see your fingerprints in so many different avenues and so many different areas, people loving one another, people sacrificing to serve one another, to help one another, um, to bear burdens with one another. God, it's a gift. It really is a gift when we hear of really high percentages of churches closing the doors and we get to be a part of the small percentage that are actually planting churches and sending people out to start new congregations. Um, we believe you are active, you are at work, no matter what's going on in our country, no matter what's going on in our city, that you are actively um, focusing your presence, you are here, you are with us, Uh, your gospel is just as powerful as it ever has been, and you are producing fruit here in our midst, and we're thankful for that, and we don't take it for granted. And I ask this morning, as a tired man, um, who's got a lot of things going on this week, and I just ask that you would help me, that you would help me think clearly, help me speak clearly, um, that you would be in the word this morning, on the word, of the word, that you would help us hear it, and that you would have something for us from this uh, text this morning. God, this is all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I would like you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Um, now, this is something we, 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 do put the, we do put the scriptures on the screen for you. And the staff and the pastors, we've, we've talked about this. And we kind of have a mixed emotion, mixed emotions when it comes to that. Because we want people to open up their Bibles or even their app. We want them to open up their app and find, the, find it, 
find the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, uh, get familiar with navigating their way through the scriptures, follow along as I read it, not just kind of cheat and watch the screen, but we do put it on the screen just for those of you that maybe are uh, bifocally challenged or, you, you know, you just really need it. So we put it up there, but we do, we throw Bibles out on the bottom, uh, out on the floor. And so if you want to grab a Bible on the floor, there should be a few laying out there throughout the rows. You can grab those, you can open up your app and we're going to study and, um, and, and, and uh, work our way through this text this morning. So if you're just joining us, uh, we are 12 chapters into our study of one of the greatest books in the Bible, the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus really, if you pull out really far, get this 30,000 foot view, it really focuses on two things. First, it focuses on finding freedom from the things that enslave us. Okay? So finding freedom. But then the second is learning how to live free once you've been set free. And those are two different things. We've learned from our texts so far that the Israelite people were enslaved, they were oppressed, and they were unable to gain their freedom on their own. They were powerless as a minority. They were powerless to kind of speak to the powers that be and get themselves delivered. So God, or Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews comes to town himself and sets them free by bringing judgment upon the Egyptians. We spent a lot of time talking about that last week. Um, You can listen to the podcast if you missed it. God has miraculously accomplished this deliverance and this salvation in chapters 11 and 12. And we're going to recap that this morning uh, by reading chapter, chapter 12, verses 29 through 32. At midnight... The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God came to town and killed every firstborn. Israelite and Egyptian. He was on a mission to do this, but there was one exception. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry In Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among the people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now, God did exactly what he promised to do in the first 12 chapters. He set free his firstborn son, Israel, by judging the firstborn sons of Egypt. God went to every house in Egypt and judged them for their sins. The only way to escape the wrath of God, if we remember, was to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the lintel and the doorposts of the house. There was, the, script, the text says, there was not a house in Egypt that wasn't, there wasn't someone dead, right? Everyone's house, someone died. Either a lamb died or your firstborn son died. That was the choice. And remember that God had told the Israelites to eat this Passover meal in their traveling clothes. That God's judgment was going to be so swift 
and his deliverance so immediate that before the morning light, Pharaoh was literally throwing them out of Egypt. Verses 33 and 39 show us this. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. That leaven, so that means they, they, put, they would take their, their dough for the next day and they would put it out and they would take a pinch of their dough from, the, from the, that day and they would put it in, they would knead it together and they would let that leaven go throughout that whole uh, dough and then, then when they bake it, it would rise, right? And so they, they got pushed out of Egypt so fast that they had unleavened bread, which is why Passover celebration has unleavened bread in it to remind them of their immediate deliverance, how fast it was that took place. They didn't even have time for the yeast to work its way through the dough. That's how fast they got pushed out. Let's keep reading. Verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. You see what's going on here. This judgment is so swift and so immediate that the people say, get out, take our money, take our jewelry, just go. We're afraid we're going to die if you stay any longer. Verse 37, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked these unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust, look, thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. So we see two things right away. Their deliverance was so fast, we see the Egyptians respond, get out now and take our stuff. That's kind of their response, just go. And 600,000 of them, plus women and children, many scholars believe this could be the two, two to three million people, walked out of Egypt as free people. Can you imagine losing, that's a large, 600,000 people is a large percentage of your workforce. Them just walking out as free people. Verse 38 calls them a mixed multitude. It's very interesting. That means that the Israelites weren't the only ones who went out of Egypt with them. That they were a mixed Multitude, they came from a variety of different ethnic and racial backgrounds. Some of them were no doubt Egyptians who had seen the signs and the plagues. They've seen how God had trumped every God of Egypt and, and demolished every God of Egypt. And they said, I'm, I'm done with these face false gods of Egypt. I'm going after Yahweh. I want to follow them too. Also, there were no doubt other slaves, other tribes that had been conquered and brought to, to worship and serve Pharaoh. And as Israel's leaving, they kind of look and go, hey, I'm with them. And these slaves see their opportunity to get some freedom. And so they follow the Israelites out into the desert. And so it's interesting that this mixed multitude is leaving Egypt. They come into Egypt as one sole family. And they leave Egypt 
as this diverse, multi-ethnic group. That means on the first day of their deliverance from Egypt, God's people, as they set out on their journey to the promised land, they were already a diverse people group. And remember, one of the promises to Abraham was that he would make them a blessing to many nations. That he would be a people that doesn't just bless one little nation. He's not just going to create a nation out of him. He's going to create a nation or a people group out of him that would actually bless the nations. And we see this already happening. So from this, now I just want to kind of unpack that a little bit. There is some inherent difficulties in what's going on right now. And I think I want us to get down into the text. So we use this word called exegesis, okay? Exegesis means bringing out of the text what's there. In other words, it's going, getting ourselves down into the text and trying to feel out what would it felt, what would it feel like, what would it look like to actually be there in the moment, all right? And, I, and if we can do that this morning, I want us to see at least three really big problems that are going on. First, the Israelites were a people and all this mixed multitude coming out were a people who had lived under oppression their whole life. They were slaves. They never knew anything other than that. We, we say on a text today, 430 years they had been in slavery. So my father was a slave. His father was a slave. They've known this for their whole life. And that kind of oppression makes a deep mark, a deep wound on a person's soul. They don't know how to live as someone who isn't under slavery. Just because they're set free from slavery doesn't mean all of a sudden now they're this well-adjusted individual who can, who can respond rightfully to all things that come into their life. They have been marked and shaped. Their backs have been bent under the forced labor of Pharaoh. And for the rest of their life, they're going to struggle with being a slave. Though they've been set free, they're going to struggle to learn how to live free. All right? And so just like anyone who's experienced any kind of oppression, any kind of abuse, abuse there are going to be some post-traumatic stress disorder things that are going to come out of that. You're going to have some issues that come out of that. It's just natural. And so these folks are people that have been deeply wounded by life. And they're going out, learning how to live free and learning how to worship God. But they're wounded people doing that. And we're going to see that. So that, that's just going to... Can, can you imagine? That, that's, going to make, that's going to bring some difficulties to our story. It's going to bring some difficulties to God's goal and God's purpose. These are deeply wounded people. Second, this is also a really large group. 600,000 dudes, right, with their families among them. And anytime you have a lot of people, you are going to have a lot of difficulties. More people, more problems. And I can't imagine trying to communicate to this many people, right? If God wanted to invent the iPhone, now was the time he should have did it, done it, right? One mass text, Moses just sent out texts. Right? I don't know how you communicate to that many people. No microphone, right? No real amplification unless they've got some kind of natural, you know, way of the earth that they can amplify things. Uh, It it just fascinates me. How would you communicate? All right, we're going to go to the mountain and we're going to take a right. We're going to the mountain, you know, like it's like telephone, right? 
What does it get to when it's, when it's back there? He says, take a nap. I don't know. What? So it, here's another difficulty, all right? So first off, we've got a deeply wounded people, deep, deeply scarred people. Secondly, we've got a lot of these people. The counseling involved. Oh, right? I, I, that's just a, a difficulty that's there. And third, we have, of course, a mixed multitude of ethnically and racially diverse people. And that means that you're going to have a, these, all of these different people worshiping God. Even if they all said they're going to worship God, they're going to respond and worship God in radically different ways. Some people are going, just like every culture has its own marks and attributes. Some cultures are more expressive. Some cultures are more subdued. And so you're going to have all these different ways people are trying to worship God. And not only that, but this mixed multitude, they're going to bring their gods with them. There are, many of them are, you know, they're pluralistic, right? They're polytheistic. They're worshiping multiple gods. Yahweh's just one of the bunch. And so they're going to kind of bring their idols and bring their false worship into Israel. And they're going to bring some problems with it as, as well. Now, I can't, it's really hard for us to get our mind around just the complexity of this endeavor. That many people, that diverse, that broken, you know, how, how do you get this mixed multitude of people on the same page? How do you get them all to kind of live peace, peaceably and work together as they make this long trek in the desert? Now, it's also important for us to remember that, there, that this, there's a goal in mind here. God has a goal and a purpose in mind. God has set his people free so that they could live free and worship him freely in this new land called the promised land. He hasn't set them free and just opened, like, opened the pen for the sheep and gone, whatever have fun. Just don't kill yourselves, right? He hasn't just opened the pen and just said, go on out. He's opened it and he's got shepherds that are leading them. And he's saying, we have a very specific place to go to. And I want you to be a very specific type of person. I want you to live free as we're working towards this land of freedom. He has a goal in mind. His goal is to get to this place where people know him and they can worship him rightly in what right relationship with him. So his his setting them free has a very specific purpose. So when you have a goal in mind, and if you're like thinking about, if you're Moses, and I got to get my people from point A to point B, but it's not just a direct route. I need to shape them into a certain type of people. So when we get there, they, they're the type of people that want to worship God, that know how to worship God, and that they show the rest of the world what God is like when we get there. It's a very missional perspective. God has a mission in the world to be known and to be worshipped. And he wants his people to be shaped in a very specific way so when they get there, they can show the world what he's like. Well, if you've read ahead, so how do you do this? How do you do that? How do you get these broken, diverse, multitude of people from point A to point B and become the type of person that you need to become? Well, it's interesting. If you've read ahead in in the book of Exodus, you know that pretty soon God is going to issue the Ten Commandments. And what we've decided to do is we're going to do a whole... 10-week series in the midst of our book of Exodus on uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. And so the Ten Commandments are basically one chapter, and so we're going to spend 10 weeks on one chapter. That's what I like to do. So let's just make this thing longer, right? Let's just make this thing longer. And so we're going to spend that coming up. But <clears throat> I 
What's interesting to me is that before God gives them these Ten Commandments, these Ten Commandments that are meant to shape them into people who know how to live free. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. The understanding how to live in the freedom of God and the worship of God. Before he gives them that, he gives them a meal. Now, that's interesting to me. That actually, the first thing God commands his people to do is to eat a meal, and this meal is going to change the world forever. This meal is not meant to be a one-time meal. God says to eat this meal every year at the same time forever. That this meal has been eaten for 3,500 years. People are still eating this meal today, this Passover meal. That it's a meal that has literally shaped the world. And from this meal, and that's kind of what I want to unpack a little bit this morning. From this meal, the Israelites are meant to learn and to be formed in three, at least three specific ways. And so, so are we kind of by extension. So I want us to go to chapter 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Now, this is interesting. First, the Passover, let's just talk about what is the Passover, okay? We got two things. Anytime we're talking about the Passover, there's two things that should come to mind. There's the event of the Passover where they killed the lamb, they put the blood, God passed over them in judgment, right? He passed over them and they were delivered. There's that event, but then there's also the meal. And the Passover meal, the Passover celebration is meant to shape them and remind them of the event. And it's kind of Confusing because they use that language, the Passover back and forth. Sometimes they're talking about the meal. Sometimes they're specifically talking about the event. And this is what I want us to see. First off, the Passover celebration, Passover meal, was meant to be a deeply personal experience. It was to remind them of the night when God came to town and they were helpless under his wrath, that they either slaughtered a lamb or their son would die, their firstborn would die. But God gave them a way out if they were to shelter themselves under the blood of the lamb. So this meal was meant to be a deeply personal reminder that they had been set free from Egyptian bondage, that their identities had been changed, that their whole life They were going this direction, and in one moment, their whole life direction changed, and their identities changed. They went from slave to free person in one night. And this was meant to be deeply personal to them, that they could remember back to the night where dread was coming, God God was coming, the avenger was on his way, the destroyer, as it said earlier in the chapter. The destroyer was coming, and yet they were not destroyed. Now, one thing that I like is... In the Lord of the Rings, all right? <laughs> Pippin, 
One, one of the hobbits, he's in this city, and it's under siege, okay? And it's, it's under siege to the extent that they're going down. There's been mass, massive casualties. It's just a few moments before their lines completely break, and the, you know, and the warriors come in and kill them and conquer them. And it's, it's a really dark scene, and, and Pippin is afraid, and he, he kind of signed up for this thing, and he was excited, and he thought he was going to be a warrior, and now he realizes the cost. Now he realizes we're losing this battle, and I'm never going to see my friends again, I'm never going to see my family again, and I'm, I'm going to die in this moment. But just at the last moment, just when it seems like all hope is lost, he hears this faint blow of a war horn in the distance. And it was the horn of Rohan. The riders of Rohan had arrived to rescue them just in the nick of time. And they sweep in and save him and he doesn't die. Now, that's it, a great scene. I love it every time I read it. But in the book, you don't get to see this. In the, in the book, it's in the book, but it's not in the, it's not in the movie. We're told that for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance without breaking into tears. Why? Because the horn was a physical and audible reminder of his salvation. And when he heard the horn, he relived his salvation. He felt the oppression. He felt death at his doorstep. He felt like he was going to die. And then that moment when everything is at its darkest and then the sun shines the clearer and he's rescued and he's saved, it was an ecstatic feeling. He never felt anything like it before. And for the rest of his life, when he heard a horn in a distance, he wept. No matter how upset he was, no matter how, he couldn't stay angry when he heard a horn. No matter how grieved he was, he couldn't say grieved when he heard a horn. Now, why? Because it, it connected him personally to his past experience of rescue. Now listen, the Passover was the Israelites' horn. Every year they were to eat this meal and relive this powerful personal experience of salvation. But the Passover was more than just personal. It was also deeply communal. Look at, look at verse 47. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. So this means everybody. All of Israel has to do this every year. There was no opting out. If you wanted to be in the people of God, you had to relive this every single year. You would sit down and eat this meal. If you're one of God's people, you're going to do this. And it's, what's interesting too is they did this as this big congregation. They didn't come together in this big 600,000 you know, member amphitheater and, and break out this bread and pass it around down and through the aisles. They didn't do it like that. They said, this meal needs to be eaten every year in your house, under your tent, under your roof. What does that mean? Think about this. It's not just personal. It's deeply communal. It's familial. You're, you're sitting down with your friends in your family, in one house, and you're reminding each other together. Do you remember that night? Do you remember that night? Do you remember the last 430 years when we were slaves in Egypt? Do you remember how bad it was for us? Do you remember what God has done for us? Do you remember the lamb that took our place? See, 
It's not just a, it's, this Passover meal wasn't just meant to shape them as individuals that worship God. It was meant to shape them corporately as a people, as a, I'm going to use this language, as a church. It's meant to shape them as a people that worship God together, that moved together as a covenant community of people. It's more than just personal. It's meant to give them roots and a family of people to worship God with. But then we read this kind of confusing sentence in verse 43. <clears throat> and the Lord, and can I just say, in our society today, we're deeply kind of afraid of the communal. We're deeply afraid of the institutional church. Many people say that I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I don't like institutional religion. I don't like organized religion. I'm more spiritual Well, what is that actually saying? What you're saying is you're all about you. What you're doing is prioritizing your individual experience over a communal experience. And and therefore, it's all about you. So you're actually never, if you live that way, and if you believe that way, if you push away from that sense of community, you're actually going to be pushing away from, from community itself, and you're going to have to live this deeply individual life, and you're never going to be satisfied relationally. You're going to have your spouse try to meet all the needs that God has kind of put, God has built a church for, God has built a family for, that's meant to help shape and shape you and love you and care for you. If you're not, if you, if you push away from institutional religion and push away from the church, then you're actually going to put all that weight on your wife and kids or on your gym friends or on your employee friends at work. You're going to put all that weight on there and they just can't satisfy it. Now, look, look at this, look at verse 43. I'm, I'm going to unpack this just a little bit. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Okay, now it's kind of a confusing sentence. And it seems like for those of you who are kind of anti-establishment, right? You kind of push away from organized religion because you think it's discriminatory or it's divisive. You might read this and go, see, this is why I, I don't want, like organized religion. No foreigner shall eat it. This seems to be ethnocentric. This seems to be a meal that kind of creates some kind of xenophobic community, this community that prioritizes one race or one ethnicity over the other. This seems to be some kind of intolerant community that kind of pushes out the outsider. But honestly, the truth, you know, that, that statement there, it couldn't be further from the truth. If you just keep reading. I want you to keep reading and look all the way down to verse 4. Let me just go skip to 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Now, what is going on here? God has got this diverse people coming out of Egypt, and he is making a way for the outsider, the non Jewish person, to become one of his people and eat the Passover meal and to become under the blood of the new covenant, okay? Or under the blood of the covenant. I don't to use the word new yet. The only requirement for them is they must be circumcised. 
Now, what's going on here, right? God is showing them that the Passover meal is personal, it's communal, but more importantly, or also, it's covenantal. The Passover is not a xenophobic meal. It's not an ethnocentric meal. It isn't a meal that's meant to divide people ethnically or racially or say who is good and who is bad. Nor is it a meal for only the elites in Israel society, which is very different. They were a very class-centered society, not just Israel, but all of Egypt and all the surrounding nations. The poor did not eat with the rich, or more specifically, the rich did not eat with the poor. And the Passover is not, it's a meal that cuts across all those cultural lines. But it's not just for anybody. The Passover was a meal that invited the outsider to become an insider, the ethnic minority, the racial minority, the rich and the poor. But in order to come in, there was still some rules. There were still some guidelines. They must come under the covenant. See, now the Passover is this meal that invites the outsider in, but it's not an open meal. The meal is not open for anyone and everyone. God says no foreigners shall eat it without being circumcised. Now, we don't talk about circumcision much. We, most of us probably don't have this understanding of what actually was going on and what circumcision means in the Old Testament. And I don't have a ton of time to go into it. <clears throat> God is inviting the outsider in. But let me just say it, say it like this in summary. In order for the outsider to become an insider, they must become theologically Jewish. What does that mean? They must enter into God's covenant people through faith. And the way they entered it through faith, Romans tells us the way Abraham was justified by his faith was he marked his children through this process of circumcision. Now, circumcision, it's a a bloody kind of celebration that marks uh, the children of Israel, the men of Israel. It marks them and it says that as their foreskin is cut off, so their sins will be cut off from them. Right? God will remove their sins far from them. And there they come under the blood, right? It's this bloody ceremony. We've got a bloody circumcision ceremony. We've got a bloody sacrificial ceremony. And it's a marker of being inside God's covenant people. But it's a sign of their faith. They enter it by faith. And the sign of their faith is the covenant of circumcision. So what we see from this is that the Passover meal was a meal that created, hear me, created unity in the midst of a lot of diversity that's going on. A lot of sinfulness, a lot of brokenness, a lot of different people, a lot of diverse people. And the Lord and the Lord or, and, and the Passover created a diversity or a unity in this diversity by saying, here's the one thing that matters. The one thing that matters is are you in the covenant? Have you entered the covenant through faith and marked your children, but with a sign of the covenant which is circumcision. We're going to be united, not around our race, not around our nationality. We're going to be united around the covenant of Jesus Christ. Keep jumping ahead and cheating. I'm sorry. So hard. So hard to preach the Old Testament like you don't know what's coming. It's so hard. I'm sorry. 
But this one verse here kind of threw me for a loop this week. And it's verse 42. I want you to go there. It says this. Talking about the Passover and the night they're going to eat, they're going to eat the Passover every year. It says this. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying when God came to town, he was watching. Some, the, the other term, some um, translations use is vigil. It's a vigil. It was a, night, it was a vigil. The Lord is watching. Okay, now look at this. Look what it says there. So, this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generation. Now, this, this is something that's important for us. This Passover meal was about more than remembering. It doesn't say this will be a night of remembering forevermore. That you sit down, remember, 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 remember. It's about more than remembering. It's about watching. What this tells us is that the Passover was about looking back, but it was also about looking forward. The people of God were to look back at the Passover and become so familiar with the details of their deliverance that if God were to ever do it again, they would recognize his fingerprints. And what we see, if you have read your New Testament and you're familiar with your New Testament, as you're reading through these chapters, it's like God's laying down some breadcrumbs. God is teaching his people concepts that will help them Realize and recognize the sacredness of the body of Christ as it will be offered up on the cross for them as a substitutionary atonement in the future. He's laying down breadcrumbs so that when Jesus Christ leaves heaven and is incarnated in the flesh and he begins to live this life and have this ministry and then ultimately he's heading towards the cross that people would be like wait i've seen this somewhere before we see just randomly in there in today's text that the lamb couldn't its bones could not be broken Hmm. Interestingly enough that John in his, in, the, in his gospel in chapter 19, verse 36, he says that was pointing to Jesus. That Jesus was crucified and not one of his bones was broken. And he says that fulfilled the prophecy from the book of Exodus. You're reading that and we're like, I don't know if that was prophecy. He's talking about the Passover lamb. John says, the disciple whom Jesus loved says, no, that was pointing. That was a breadcrumb. Remember this night of watching we've been doing for 1,500 years, 1,600 years, 1,700 years, eight, this night of watching? It wasn't just a past experience. It was going to happen again. It was a prequel. And the same motif is going to show up in its fulfillment, and you need to be ready for it. And the sad reality is that the, many of the Jewish people 
The Pharisees and the Sadducees, those strictly, staunchly religious who knew their Bible, didn't pick up the breadcrumbs. And when the Christ, when Jesus Christ showed up, they missed him. They had remembered the Passover, but they weren't watching. We see the spotless lamb, the spotless male lamb that has to be slain. We see that his bones cannot be broken. We see that his body needs to be eaten and its blood needs to apply to a household in faith. And this will cause the wrath of God to be propitiated, that the wrath of God will be diverted and turned into favor towards that person who does that. That this meal is to be eaten as a reminder forever. But here's the reality. This Passover meal, and it's important for us to get down into it and to study it, this Passover meal was only meant to be an appetizer. This meal was meant to prepare us for the ultimate meal. The meal that would really change the world. And obviously, as we talked about last week, Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he ate this Passover meal with his disciples, but he broke protocol. Any good Jew that would have been sitting there would have been like, what? They would have said, whoa. He broke this, this hundred, hundred, I can't even remember how many exact years, 1600 year tradition at that point in time. He broke this 1600 year tradition by saying with the bread, this is my body. And with the wine, this is my blood. And have, not having any lamb there that we know of and saying, I am the new lamb. Paul said that specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. He says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. Jesus says the watching is over. The waiting is over. I am here. I am the fulfillment of the Passover meal. And I am the new meal that you must eat. And he gives us his body in the bread and his blood in the cup. Now, just like the Passover, the Lord's Supper that Jesus instituted, so Jesus kind of swallows up the Passover. Jesus says, all the watching, all the waiting, all the sacrificing the lamb, all of that stuff was pointing to me, Passover's done, I'm the new Passover. I, this is the new meal that you're going to eat that's going to change the world. And he does the same thing that, that the Passover did, as he shapes, it, it's a deeply personal experience, it's a deeply communal experience, and it's a deeply covenantal experience. And we need to take a look at all these things. That G, when we come to the Lord's Supper, this is meant to be a deeply personal time for you. It's a time where we remember that Jesus was broken for our sins in our place. And the Lord's Supper is a way for us to experience a deeper connection with God.
Sorry. No, it was not your computer. That was us. Batteries. Just start over? I've done too much work, brother. No way. No way. Ain't happening. So the Lord's Supper is a way for us to experience a deeper communion with God. That's why we call it communion. That's one of the reasons some people call it communion. That kind of the abstract, invisible concepts of Christ's propitiatory, vicarious, and substitutionary death for us are translated. These big concepts that we've been told about and we've heard about are translated for us into a palpable sign. Something that engages our senses. We can touch it. We can taste it. All of this is meant to make Jesus' sacrifice more real to us. And at that moment, we're meant to find a deeper communion, a deeper moment of personal experience with God. That this, the Lord's Supper, is our horn. It's our horn. When we take, when you come and you... We should come to the Lord's table rightly. In humility. And the only thing we do is we open up our hands, our empty hands that have done work all week long. Maybe these hands have been violent throughout the week. Maybe these hands have stolen throughout the week. Maybe these hands have sinned throughout the week. These hands that are empty, that we bring nothing good but our sins to God, and we open up our hands and we are, what do we receive? We receive the broken body of Jesus Christ into these hands. That is meant to be a deeply personal, experiential time for you where you're reminded of how broken you are and how good God is and how loving Jesus is. It's deeply personal in that moment. Don't walk up to me and snatch something out of my hand. This isn't something that's nonchalant. Just because we do it every week doesn't mean it's nonchalant. We believe Jesus Christ is really present here. In the body and in the blood, he's really present here. And this is something deeply meaningful and personal for us. But, like the Passover, this Lord's Supper is more than just personal. It's also communal. Now, this is interesting. When the Passover, we we already saw, how did you celebrate the Passover? With your family in one house. But at the last Passover... Where Jesus celebrated it, he wasn't with his mom. He wasn't with his family. Jesus was with his disciples. Why? Because he's turning them into his family. This is his new family, his family of faith, his covenantal family. The Lord's Supper then is a meal that is meant to create and commemorate a committed community. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we're not just coming individually. We're coming as a broken people group. We're coming as a diverse people group. We're eating with different races and different backgrounds and different socioeconomic status. Wherever you're at on that scale, we're eating together as a family, a very diverse family. 
And it's meant to remind us it's, it's about more than just us. You know, what also happens is we're eating, in a sense, with an eternal family. The communion of the saints throughout time and space. Every saint who has ever ate this meal, we're eating with them. That the saints in glory have ate this meal with us and have taken the body of Christ in. And we're not, Christianity is not an individualistic religion. You're saved into a family. And we live like family and families eat together. And then lastly, it's covenantal. All are invited, but in order to enter into the Lord's Supper, you must be, you must have the new sign of the covenant upon you, and that is baptism. This is why we say you must believe and be baptized. Listen, they, the sign of the covenant was not just faith. It wasn't just faith. Just believe, and then now you can eat the Passover. It was believe and apply the sign of circumcision. The new covenant is believe, apply the sign, which is baptism. So this is why we, the word that's been used is we fence the Lord's table. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that people have been sick, people are under judgment, people have received all kinds of things in their body because they're eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And what is an unworthy manner? It could be unrepentant, it's unrepentant sin. It's not being inside the covenant community. All of, we don't, you know, there's other possibilities, but those two things for sure. And so we must, this is a deeply covenantal meal. We must believe and we must be baptized. And now every time, so this is interesting, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, every morning, every Sunday morning, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. We're renewing our vows with the Lord. We're remembering what he's done for us. How faithful he's been to us. We're to remember what he did for us, how he took the curse of the covenant so we could be in relationship with him by grace. And this means the, cup, the Lord's Supper is for only for baptized believers. Now, I want you to think about that. The personal, communal, covenantal. This is it when I'm, as I'm closing. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, God is calling you to link your heart more deeply with his heart. He's calling you to link your individual life more deeply with his people. And he's calling you to link your life and practice more deeply into your beliefs. In other words, it builds us personally, it builds the church community communally, and it builds our Christian character and our integrity. And I, I just love the thought that a meal can change the world. That who you eat this meal with can change the world. Not who you vote for. Who you eat with. Diverse family centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not our race. Not the neighborhood we live in. Not the class that we find ourselves in. But the gospel of Jesus Christ that tears down every dividing wall 
of hostility. What the world needs is a church that understands the power of the Lord's Supper. A church that understands how to create unity in the midst of diversity in the covenant of grace. Now, our church believes that the Lord's Supper is not just a symbol, but that Jesus promised that he is spiritually present at his table in this food. That he meets us in a special, real way and he helps us uniquely when we take the sacrament rightly in thoughtfulness, humility, and reverence. And that's what we're going to do this morning. And I would challenge you, if you have never um, believed in Jesus Christ or put your faith in Jesus Christ, don't take the elements this morning. Take Christ. Take Jesus. And Jesus says, all your sins, though they're many, all my sins, though they're many, if we place them under the blood of Jesus, his wrath passes over us and it's turned into favor. And good is waiting for us and blessing is awaiting for us and a new way to live and a new communion with the Father is waiting for us. And you've never known a love like that. And this supper reminds us of that. You've never known a love like that. To be that sinful and that loved. No one's ever loved you like that. But God the Father has by putting forward his son as a sacrifice to take your place. Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning as we took a a deeper look into the Passover and into your supper that you gave us, that this would be a meal to change us into the type of people who live free, invite the outsider in, and live as thankful, humble people who've been saved by grace. I thank you for your work. Thank you for your son. I thank you for just how magnificent your word is. How you, as the author, are writing this 1,500 years before Jesus is coming and you're laying down breadcrumbs so that we wouldn't miss your son as the fulfillment of the Passover. Father, I thank you that though our sins are many, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has washed us white as snow. I pray this morning as we come to your table that we would eat it rightly. You'd give us the humility and the faith to believe and we'd open up our sin-stained hands and you'd place your body that was broken for us into them and your blood that was shed, that as we eat it, it become a part of us. It would change us from the inside out into a people more like your son Jesus, more self-sacrificial, more others-focused, someone who unites diverse people because of your son, because of your gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.